which uh wish you hadn't been such a douchebag. Hello and welcome to a Rattlegem Broadcasting production of one of our premier shows here, The Long Road to Ruin. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. Sean Comer would like to be here, but he is out tripping the light fantastic. He is traveling around the world in an air balloon in, uh, in 80 days. That's, that's what he's doing. Um, he's searching for the meaning of life, folks. He is locating the Ark of the Covenant. He is continuing to, uh, to be the subject of many... Um, phrases, and other things that I'm uttering throughout this introduction. However, I've got a near and dear co-host. He's the vice president of Rattledgeon Broadcasting Productions. He's my right-hand man. He's the go-to guy. He's the authority on evil and the host of the 401 Ground and Pound radio show, Mr. Robert Winfrey. How do you do, sir? I do pretty good. Uh, I'm just curious that was the best song out of that entire soundtrack you decided to go with that one all right before i before i launch into a 20 minute defense of myself and and uh show my adoration for rage against the machine i was just like dancing in my seat here i was like yeah rage against the machine love it um i was being marked for rage against the machine when they came out but but okay what, what would you have picked yeah, but the rule here on the long road to one is we can't just trash things. We have to tra- we have to offer suggestions to make them better. So, what would you have picked? Oh, jeez, I haven't looked at the actual track listing for the first Matrix in forever. Um, uh, Rob Zombie's on there. Let's go with that. Uh, that was Dracula, wasn't it? In Pretty the sure, uh, yeah. fucking yeah. club scene, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Manson's got a song on the over the credits. That would have worked. You know, I, I I don't know about the re- revolutions, but Rage Against the Machine is the first song they play in both the original Matrix movie and then um and then Reloaded. And I and I'm I'm going to take a guess, an educated guess here that they play Rage again at the end of the third one. So I figured they don't. what would they don't what do they play at the end of no. the third one? Uh, they actually have a really cool uh, orchestral score that they played for the Neo and Smith fight that they redo at the start of the credits for two or for three. I actually found it really jarring from two to go from the ending they had into Rage Against the Machine. So I'm glad they did, they tried something a little different. Well, here here's what I'll tell you: uh, two out of three movies, uh, much like Meatloaf once said, two out of three ain't bad. And uh, if two out of three movies can end with Rage Against the Machine, good enough for me. And, of course, we are talking about the Wachowski Brothers Matrix Trilogy, starring Keanu Reeves, um, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, and a lot of pleather. A lot of pleather. Um, oh. So we're going to be talking <laughs> We're going to be talking about that tonight. We're gonna, Robert and I are going to break down the entire Matrix Trilogy, uh, one, two, and three. We're going to get right into that in just a moment, but... Um, I know one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this was, one, I, especially after watching the first two movies again today, preparation for tonight's discussion, how how much of my complaints mirror my complaints of the prequel trilogy for, of the Star Wars movies. Um, a, lot of, a lot of similarities there, in my opinion. But you know, it's, it's definitely one of these trilogies which... Uh, starts off great. I mean, the, the Matrix was never meant to be a franchise. But it was such a it was such a great sci fi movie 
and it kind of came out of left field that Warner Brothers decided that they they wanted more movies. And it's it's one of those where uh, pe- very very creative people with good intentions could um, get stuck up there. Uh, well, the phrase used in the honest trailer for the Matrix trilogy was get it gets stuck up its own ass. I think there was a lot of good intentions with the Matrix trilogy. I think um, someone uh, again in the in the honest trailer it was referred to as the thinking man's action film, and to to a decent extent, I think that's true. But for as many you know, positive things I can say about the Matrix trilogy, uh, there were so many things wrong with the second and especially the third movie that uh, I have been wanting to talk about this now for for a very long time. And the only and, the, and I wish I had an opportunity to have watched the the hours and hours of extra um, of extra material that's on the Blu-rays, you know, the documentaries and stuff. But uh, you know, such is life. In any case. Um, Robert, as I do, the first question I always ask is, you know, what's your impression of these movies? Uh, what what brought you to them? What me? You know, I asked you to kind of come on here uh, and discuss it with me. Um, but why did you decide to do that? Other than you were just trying to help a brother out? Uh, mostly, I'm trying to help you out. Uh, the other <laughs> thing is, I have a very, I have a friend. Uh, shocking, I know, right? Uh, but I have a good friend who is a devout fan of all three of these movies. And I know you and the general perception of, especially two and three, is on the negative side. So I talked with him a little bit. I got his kind of perspective on things, and I felt, you know, I can come on here and for once in my life provide a positive thing because everyone else is negative. Really, I just kind of like being the contrarian. I like making people think. I like presenting the counter-argument. Normally, that means I look on the negative side of things, but in this case, it means, you know, I get to look on the positive side of things. I felt I could provide an adequate counterpoint to some of the issues, a lot of the negativity and whatnot. So that's the primary reason I'm here. As for how I came to the films in general, I was, oh, jeez, I was in ninth grade, I think. Yeah, so I was a freshman in high school when the first one came out, which puts me smack in the target demographic for what they wound up going for. And you, if you were that age, around that time, you couldn't avoid it. I mean, it was everywhere. So that's kind of how I became aware of the movies. I was bombarded by them, even though I lived 10 miles from the nearest grocery store and didn't have television. I was still bombarded. That's how pervasive that particular, that the first movie was. Uh, I was living in California when the first movie came out, and I had no interest in seeing it. Um, first of all, I have no interest in Keanu Reeves as an actor. Um, I mean, Pinocchio, less wooden than Keanu Reeves in terms of... I just, my God, him, him and uh, Hayden Christensen really could battle it out for worst actor <laughs> in, a, in a sci-fi fantasy film. My goodness. Um so I, I wasn't interested in the Matrix at all. Uh, the, this idea of we're living in a virtual re- we're we're po- we're living in pods and our minds are in a virtual reality. This is not a new concept, and I knew that's what the movie was about, and you know that the, the, these folks were rebelling against that, and I and I just didn't care. I, I know um, back when it came out, but my um, my cousin's husband at the time. 
wanted to go to the movies. I think it was kind of a girls were doing one thing, so the guys had to go uh, busy themselves with something else. And he wanted to go see it. And I was like, well, (laughs) hey, come watch the action movie where people are going to shoot guns at each other. No, I'd rather sit home and play with myself. I mean, I'm not going to say that. So I went, and I was astounded. I mean, the the original Matrix movie um, really was a breath of fresh air in terms of science fiction. Of course, this is the introduction to bullet time, which would be stolen and Wait. copied and used ad nauseum for for films um, going forward. You know, it uh, there, there's a lot that came out of the Matrix, but uh, in and of itself. Even though the material wasn't new, I thought it presented it in an interesting enough way, and and it it doesn't get uh, it doesn't get too convoluted for its own good. It was a pretty straightforward plot. Um, some folks in the Matrix are are questioning their existence, and they're woken up and they join the revolution. Um, there's a prophecy that says one of them will be. Uh, the kung fu Jesus figure that will <laughs> that will say that that will save them from the machines that are keeping them enslaved and win the war. And Keanu Reeves happens Keanu Reeves. to be kung fu Jesus. Okay, fine. I'm okay with all of that. And it ended up being great. So, um, so so let's get into this first. I know you're you're. I want to ask you before we get into sort of the craft of the film and the performances and whatnot. I want to ask you, because you're a pretty well-read guy, uh, one of the things that makes the Matrix movies different from it, from many of the action films and why some call it the thinking man's action film uh, is the presentation of philosophical ideas. There's a lot of discussion of choice and free will and all of that, and uh, I just kind of want to get your reaction to that. And um, yeah, if if you picked up any ideas uh, that were being presented, specific ideas, um, and how well you thought they were presented in the film. This is one of the reasons that I think a lot of people kind of gravitate towards these movies, especially, again, I was, again, a teenager when these came out, and there were, I firmly believe there are two types of teenagers. There are the sports-obsessed teenagers and the pseudo-intellectuals. I say pseudo just because your brain is not yet fully developed. Consequently, you look for new things, you try to explore things, you try to understand the world around you, all these things, and they absorb into your brain. Some people use this development time within their brain to develop their physique, sports strategies, physical things, generally speaking, and some use it to do intellectuals. Now, there's plenty of crossover. People are not, don't necessarily fall into strict categories. But as a general rule, this is where you fall. And given that, and I suppose you all may have well guessed, that I fell into what I, again, have mentioned the pseudo-intellectual category, I was interested by some of the theories. Unfortunately, most of them I was familiar with when they were presented in The Matrix. Again, like you mentioned, the idea that maybe we're pods. I mean, I had someone, I had not seen the movie, I had someone come up and, to me and kind of, you know, de- and just you know, kind of jokingly bring up the plot, you know, maybe we're all just, you know, our bodies are in pods uh, being you know, and we're being leached by machines for energy. And my response was, why do we need bodies? I mean, the, the most famous recent example of that thought experiment was referred to as the brains in a vat theory, where we're not even bodies, we're simply brains in a vat being fed stimulation. And how would we know if we weren't? 
So I knew that. I was familiar with that. I was vaguely familiar with the tenets of nihilism, which is kind of what Smith represents even in the first one, though much more so in two and three. It was all presented very well. I mean, I was actually kind of happy that some of the some of the ideas were being presented that way. Uh, choice is an interesting one because that gets a lot heavier in two and three when the Wachowski brothers expand a bit more on their philosophy and mythology within their world as opposed to just being kind of a lower... This is an odd thing, but it's... The, the Matrix, crazily enough, is a bit of a minimalist film, especially compared with what it would become, and that personally appeals to my sensibilities. I like, you know, again, smaller kind of guerrilla style. It, it's one of the reasons I prefer the first Terminator movie over the second. Both fantastic movies, but you give me my choice, I prefer the first one. Kind of the same thing. It's, you know, I, I just have that, that aesthetic, that feel to a film kind of appeals to me. And the, again, the overall messages that they were talking about, the, some of the discussions that Morpheus has, or just dialogues more than discussions from time to time, they're interesting, they're presented well, and they're easily digestible. And that helps the whole thing tremendously. It elevates it from just being a soulless kind of flashy action movie, of which there are far too many. Most of which, most of them, attached to Michael Bay. Now that I've gone on for far too <laughs> no, long, that's that answer. <laughs> no, yeah, that was great. That was what I was looking for. Um, let me let me say this. Uh, that was part of the reason why I didn't want to go see The Matrix to begin with, and why I tend to to my comic book movies uh, and, and um, uh, franchise property type summer blockbuster movies, and I typically don't go see a lot of action movies outside of the summer ones because of that reason. It's it's a lot of the same thing. It's 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 hand to hand combat, it's you know, it's it's orchestrated fights. It's people shooting at each other and no and everyone having the aim of Cobra from G. I. Joe. Just nobody can hit a damn thing. And somewhere in there is scribbled a plot. So that that was that that was where my disinterest came from. You're absolutely right. One of the things that makes The Matrix uh, a win for me is the fact that you have these moments of discussion between the characters. You know, there's uh, there's a discussion of faith. You know, the whole concept of the prop. Look, you don't we, you don't have to name drop Christianity or any of the known religions to have a discussion of faith. What you you simply have something that Morpheus believes in. No, you know he's surrounded by doubters, and um, at least in terms of the first movie, the prophecy rings true, and his faith is rewarded. Great, you know I, I thought that was interesting. You know, th- there's more than just kung fu fighting going on, going on, and, and I have to add this: I'm not a kung fu fan. I am, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was probably one of the most boring movies I've ever been forced to sit through. Oh God, um, I'm sorry. You, you know, feel I, that way. I like watching. I, look, I know I, I know a lot of guys are into it, and I don't begrudge people that kung fu movies. I, it's just not my thing, you know. A movie like Warrior, where there's some meaning behind the fighting, um, which is the, the MMA movie. Uh, yeah, that kind of thing I like, but it's just 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 a well orchestrated uh, fight on a with using wires and whatnot. Ugh, I, I, I no thanks. <laughs> In any case. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about the look of the movie. You know, it has this um, cyberpunk uh, feel to it. Everyone's wearing 
black leather and pleather, and they, they all they they look like they're going to a goth club. What did you think about that choice uh, for costuming? Uh, they re- they could have done anything. They could have made the the Matrix soldiers look like anything. They could have made them look normal, uh, but they chose to go with the kind of kids I went to goth clubs with. Look, what did you, what did you think of that? Well, the fact that it goes from tolerable—it's there's a weird kind of dynamic with the costuming choice in that in the first film, it's more representation of kind of just the what was edgy. Uh, I hate to say edgy cool because that's kind, of, but that's kind of what they were going for, and just not not completely outside the realm of what you see, but just on the fringes of it. And that's kind of what they, that's kind of the visual aesthetic I feel they were going for with this. And it just gets progressively more like fetish wear through two and three, which is a bit off-putting. But again, that, that's kind of the dynamic they're trying to aim for. They keep trying to push, you know, they want them these characters to exist visually on just, an, just outside the norm, but not so far outside as to draw unwanted attention, which makes perfect sense given that, yeah, again, it, it's part of the storytelling medium. That it's part of the story, uh, as costume design always is. And what story are you trying to tell with them? In this case, you have, uh, again, they're outsiders, but they're not at all, rebe- you know, they're not at all the unconscious, you know, kind of rebellious goth or the people who devoted themselves to living within that particular subculture. And either way is fine and dandy with me. But it. I enjoyed it the uh, for the first movie. Unfortunately, it progressively got just a little bit weirder. And honestly, by the time the second and third, it almost looks a little dated, which is an odd thing to yeah. say for some of yeah. these movies. But in the first one, I thought it was great. It's very black. It's very angular. It's all it contributes to the overall aesthetic. And one of the one of the other things within kind of that same realm is the fact that the clothes they all wear bounce nicely off of the kind of greenwash color palette that you have when you're within the Matrix. Uh, which is, again, just it, all, it just further helps differentiate them from everything else that's going on within that world and sets them apart from, uh, just the, you know, again, the average people who are just going about their daily lives. Which is, again, further yeah, contrasted really- by the blue color palette you get in the real world. Right. One of the really nice changes of pace in terms of casting, uh, sci-fi is not a genre typically embraced by African Americans, and they are not re- well represented in the sci-fi and fantasy genre. It's it's usually white people flying spaceships, shooting aliens, and white people fighting dragons. And if there's a black person, they're a token black person, and they are the they are very much the minority. And I think that's a reflection in terms of the fans and the you know the, the groups of people that go to see these movies. Um, and so they're not well represented in casting. The Matrix really bucks that trend, especially in the second and third movie. Um, I'm pretty sure a, everyone who was born in Zion is either Polynesian or black. Yeah, apparently those are the people most likely to reject the Matrix. White people are like, I love it here. It's wonderful. You know, black people are like, fuck this. I'm out of here. I'll go join the revolution. Go rave in a cave. We'll get to that in a little bit. Oh, but, um, yeah, I believe I want to talk about that, but I feel like we need to give the original movie its due course. But I am chomping at the bit to get it into, into Reloaded. 
I have plenty um, of good case, things to say about that movie as well. Just as a brief aside, that scene strikes me as superfluous and overlong. Let, let, let's let's get there in due course. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Um, but uh, I think we should give The Matrix its due and say that this is one of the very rare opportunities you get to see a mostly black cast. Um, not not so much in the well. You figure you've got uh, at least two of the crew members on, on the whatever the name of the ship was called. The Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the Nebuchadnezzar. Aren't you, aren't you uh, supposed to be Jewish and you don't know Nebuchadnezzar? Sorry, sorry. I don't remember what the name of the ship is. Um, um, whatever. <laughs> and then you put yeah, your Lawrence Fishburne, you know, who who is one of the leads of the movie. And then as you get into second, second or third one, almost, you know, like I said, almost the entire cast um, is black, and that was refreshing. I th- I thought it was an, it was a nice change. I thought, uh, for whatever the reasons are, and I stated some of them that they typically don't put a, a lot of black people in sci-fi movies. The Wachowski seem to have made a uh, a distinct choice in doing that because because they were able to, you know. That's the, uh, and I and I like that they did that. Um, anything you want to add to the discussion of um, the out of the ordinary large group of black people represented in these films? Nah, not especially. I mean, there's an interesting discussion to be had when it comes to, especially the second and third, how, again, I mentioned that Zion as their city is is initially populated by people who have never been plugged into the Matrix, and the vast majority of them are, again, black or Polynesian, I feel, to one extent or another. There's a few white people in there, but by and large. It, there's an interesting discussion that can be had about, especially when you consider that the agents are all white and all sport highly generic Anglo-Saxon names. So th- there's a discussion that can be had as far as the symbolism goes and kind of what they're subtly trying to say about that. But apart from that, I liked the fact that this was, you mentioned it, that by and large, sci-fi is a pretty, ironically enough, a pretty whitewashed genre. So it's nice to see a movie that, especially one that deals so deeply with the real world and uh, kind of the, all the inherent demographics and distinctions that go along with that, stick to with stick to being a very diverse, uh, from a casting standpoint, a very diversified movie. I want to talk a little bit about Keanu Reeves' performance in this because I was actually, in the beginning of The Matrix, um, and for the most part throughout that movie, he actually talks like a normal human being. I'm not going to say he acts well, but he at least, <laughs> at least seemed to have had normal human emotions. Um, and and I, I can't help but bring this up now. By the by, the second and third movie, he turns into... He starts to give Hayden Christensen's performance from um, the prequel trilogies, where everyone else around him is talking like a normal human being and he has to keep a this ridiculous monotone you know super serial Al Gore type voice <laughs> it's like it's just unnecessary and i and it's so funny because i i often wonder when when you have directors working with actors you know in a movie that's going to require a lot of special effects and CGI you know, are they really taking time to get decent performances out of these people? Or is it just like, ah, Keanu Reeves talking to a boom mic. Great. Now superimpose a bunch of shit behind him. That's what we're focusing on here. But yeah, I just... Keanu Reeves starts out in the movie actually acting like a normal human being, which was a refreshing change for him. And then by the end of it, he turns into cardboard. 
and it's it's distracting. Um, it's definitely one of those things where uh, it, it takes away, I think, interest from the character. And we're going to get into more of this, especially when we talk about revolutions. But when when they start giving him superpowers that are utterly unexplained, like they um, and, and we can lump this into with the performance part of it, but it really had more has to do with the plot. Uh, Agent uh, Smith shoots him dead to rights at the end of the Matrix. Just murders him dead right there in the hallway. He would and have been Trinity cut says, in half. And, and Trinity I, says to his dead body, the Oracle told me I'd fall in love with the one. I'm paraphrasing. The Oracle told me I'd fall in love with the one. I'm in love with you. You're the one. Get up. And he does. And nobody explains. Nobody explains how he was able to do that ever under any circumstances. And I, the the fight performance there where he's just sort of non-emotional and able to deflect all manner of beating with one hand, I get that. That was to show that he was supposed to be, you know, a reborn super badass. But the problem is this is a repeating pattern with this character where they'll he'll he'll do more astounding things. He'll get more superpowers. Nobody will ever explain why, and he will become more wooden as the movies progress. I and I just don't know why, Robert Winfrey. I don't know why. Well, I can give you my theory. First of all, I can probably tell you why he was able to survive being gunned down in the virtual reality. Because it's a virtual reality. And given the nature of the one being the statistical anomaly kind of embedded... He's the physical manifestation of a code within the matrix that does not function according to the parameters established by the program. Now, don't get me wrong, that sounds odd, and if I, hadn't, if I did not know people who were into computer programming and I was able to glean a little bit of knowledge about this, it would be just, it makes no sense to me either, but the point there well, is hey, it's let me a virtual in. reality on, let me, that let me, he is able to manipulate. Let me jump in here. Let, let me jump in here. Um, let's assume there are no sequels to this movie. So people have have kind of questioned the scene with him and the Oracle, where the Oracle says, you're not the one. Sorry, honey. Um, you know, like you do. And uh, I was thinking about this, uh, just to piggyback off of what you're talking about, and I will let you continue. And that is, the reason why he's al- he, he comes back to life is because that's what he's supposed to do. When he first sees the Oracle, he has not yet... Um, truly understood how the Matrix works and how he is able to manipulate it. He has, he has not become one with the Force just yet. So therefore, he is not the one. And, um, you know, dying for the sins of man and then being reborn <laughs> grants him the power to of keep the, the allegory one. going. Yeah, oh, absolutely. If you, if, if, again, Kung Fu Jesus. Um, the best kind of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I would have gone with zombie Jesus, but okay. <laughs> in any case, um, I think uh, I, you know. To me, that at least within terms of the story, that makes some degree of sense. That you have the, that if he truly is the one and, and, and is able to open his mind to how the Matrix truly works, one could posit that his you know his subconscious mind knew he wasn't really dead; that his body was still intact, and there was no reason to be dead and therefore came back to life with this new understanding of how to manipulate the matrix and do all of these wonderful things. I'm okay with that. 
I'm not okay with him sacrificing parts of his personality in order to be able to do all those things. Well, that's actually a really there's an interesting kind of parallel course taken throughout the course of all three movies with both Neo and Agent Smith, who we're going to get into in a few minutes here, in that Smith, kind of by virtue of what he is, and I'll save a lot of this for when we talk about him specifically, comes to uh, experiences more and more what humanity experiences, what a human does, whereas Neo, by virtue of, again, kind of what he is, un- comes to understand and identify on some fundamental levels with the machines. And by the very nature of that, a bit of his humanity is going to be left behind. Now, a more talented actor than Keanu Reeves might have been able to lead you along that path a little gra- a little more gradually, maybe make it a bit more interesting than what appears to be Keanu Reeves simply reverting to Keanu Reeves. But it does... Mark it's Hamill, not I just, thought... Hang on, Mark, Mark, Mark Hamill did a really good job of this. Mark Hamill, over the course of three Star Wars movies gains the confidence in becoming a Jedi um, that uh, takes away some of that boyish, uh, that youthful exuberance that comes out of, you know, him being a farm boy and, you know, and then a soldier. I, you know, by the time we get to Return of the Jedi, there's a, calm, there's a calm and a confidence about him that he projects, but he still seems like a human being, you know, with emotions and everything. Uh, and I think there's a good, they, they were I think it's a good comparison. Mark Hamill's an actual good actor as opposed to Keanu Reeves. Uh, yeah, I suppose that. I, I get what you're saying, and yeah, that that's again that's the thing. It's not. This is not necessarily a a reset button for Keanu Reeves going from human being to guy who has a woodpecker land on his head and just goes yeah he comes and goes. <laughs> A Family Guy references. Uh, again, it's a deliberate... I feel it's a deliberate choice on the part of everyone. It's just that Keanu Reeves, on his own as an actor, does not have the necessary skill to handle it with the subtlety and the degrees that you get from someone like, like you said, Mark Hamill or... Uh, I'd even say Chris Pratt from Guardians of the Galaxy. Experience, you get that same kind of subtle transition from the character he is in the beginning, just kind of the lovable goofball roguish guy to the super serious, not super serious, but to, to to the more serious aspects of his character that we get at the end of that. And it's just, Keanu Reeves is serviceable and more than adequate, depending on what you ask him to do. Degrees along a path of with shifting within a character seems to be just a tad outside of his range. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um... I want to quick talk about Lawrence Fishburne uh, and his portrayal of Morpheus. <clears throat> Whenever I think of Lawrence Fishburne, I think of uh, oh gosh, the the movie that he was in, um, where uh, he had to do an accent. Uh, it was with Ice Cube. It was the one that was on co- uh, on a college campus. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm remember I'm remembering the line, but. Um, in any case, yeah, Lawrence Fishburne's another one in this movie who they're like, Lawrence, you're you're supposed to be kind of like the Yoda character, you know, you you believe in this prophecy, okay, but were you born in another time? It's his, his 
the way he delivers dialogue in this movie and, and, and everything, it's almost like he's he's very much out of place and out of time. It's supposed to be the 21st century. He talks like, at, at best, it, you know, this is early 20th century. It's just weird. <laughs> um, and I felt like that was... I, I like the character and everything. I just thought the delivery of some of the dialogue was a bit off-putting. I don't know. What did you think of it? Well, first of all, I spent uh, a good six-month period where I deliberately didn't use contractions. And so I, it didn't, it's not as off-putting to me because I have, I suppose my, I hate to call it relationship, but my relationship with the English language is different from a lot of people's. And everyone's relationship with their own language is obviously unique. But by and large, someone who speaks you know, slowly, deliberately, minus contractions, doesn't put me off the same way it does other people. And there's a couple of very good reasons for this. One, oddly enough, uh, from the Kung Fu, The Legend Continues television series from the uh, you know 90s that stars David Carradine, he goes that entire move, that entire series without using contractions. I watched a lot of that because I thought it was fun. I was a kid. That didn't bother me. And the other thing, and this I have to believe is another deliberate choice by everyone involved, if you are a religious person and you listen to people in religious authority speak, they speak very similarly to how Morpheus does. Deliberate, a little bit slower, not antiquated language, but just, you know, like you said, a little bit back to be more specific, more deliberate choices with their language, all that fun stuff. And uh, in my religion, there we have what we call a general conference, which is just a it's I, I don't want to get into the whole thing. Feel free to look up LDS General Conference if you want to understand the format and all that fun stuff. But twice a year, I get to experience a bunch of people in a row for two hours speaking within that particular uh, with those, that particular timber, that particular measure and pace to their voice. So it's not off-putting to me. I imagine there's a great number of people who that would be off-putting to just because they're not used to it. And I am, by and large. And I, I also don't have much of a problem with accents in general. So, again, other things that are off-putting to some people are not necessarily off-putting to me, but plenty of other things that... You know, the reverse is true in many a circumstance. But I enjoyed it. I liked, again, the overall aesthetic, the overall feel they're going for that with for that character is that of authority and people who speak like that there's a especially if you have the presence and the delivery and the voice quality that you get with Lawrence Fishburne it adds to the overall presentation of him and his character so it worked fine it worked fine for me the line i was remembering was when he offers ice cube a peppermint and he goes peppermint what are you two doing there plotting the reason why, I, and, I, and I'm fine with your explanation of it, and I'm not going to go into this any too much further, but I think the reason why I find it off-putting is, is for the same reason people were put off by a, by a lot of the dialogue delivery in the, pre, in the Star Wars prequels. You just have this mishmash of some people speaking in a normal, modern, English-American dialect, and other people, not aliens, you know that who spoke who spoke with uh, you know racially insensitive dialects, but just just regular human characters. You know, and some felt like you know it's like Madonna when Madonna went suddenly British. 
It was like like you try to make yourself sound self important and haughty, and so you put on this like far British accent. Like, what are you doing? And I and I think that's what bothered me about the Morpheus uh, character. Again, I liked everything else about it, but it was like, okay, you're you're this like religious character. You're this Yoda type character. You you know, you believe in Neo. You're you're gonna be the one to kind of push him to you know through the hero's arc. So you now need to sound like you're almost British. And you're like, huh? <laughs> Why is this necessary? Why can't he just sound like Lawrence Fishburne? You know, you have um, what's his face who was in The Wire who goes who can go back and forth between sounding really really ghetto or really really southern. Um, but he's another one with uh, who I think is actually uh, from England and has a Brit- and has a real British accent. I mean, Idris Elba. So, that's the one. You know, he he kind of oh, floats no, back and no, forth. No, no, no. His hold on. His southern accent from Prometheus is awful. But uh, his awful? speaking uh, outstanding. I'm uh, I'm sticking with uh, question. Okay, I'll go questionable. But his normal speaking voice, which is what he uses in Pacific Rim, is still quite... No, he, he's he got, generally speaking, a very good grasp of accents. And some actors do, and some actors don't. And he happens to be mm-hmm. one of them that does. As opposed to poor Charlie Hunnam, who fights his natural accent about half the time. Or Michael Fassbender, who is only Irish when he's wearing the Magneto helmet. <laughs> And then we have our last king of Scotland from Maleficent. Now listen, um, um, <laughs> unless you've got anything, unless you want, you want to defend any more of, of his performance, we can move on to uh, Agent Smith. Hugo Weaving. Mr. Oh, Anderson, Hugo we've missed you. <laughs> um, Hugo what do you have to say? Yeah, he boy, he was in everything for a while. Um, yeah, he was... Uh, this is around, not too long after this, I think, with the Lord of the Rings movie. So he was both Asian Smith and Elrond at the same time. Yeah. And then I think he was in something else. But, uh... Well, he was V in V for Vendetta, which is... That's right. I, I understand it's a bit divisive, but that's one of my favorite movies. Throw it. I'll have to watch it again. But uh, I'll let you go ahead and talk about Hugo Weaving. What did you like about his performance? What did you like about the Asian Smith character? Uh, at least as he was presented in the original Matrix movie. Well, as he's presented in the original Matrix, you get the only time you really get a glimpse into any character for him, apart from you know the same character the other agents have, which is faceless, interchangeable, terrifyingly generic, and supremely powerful given their circumstances, when he's talking with Morpheus. And he gets... Sorry, what was that? When he tells Morpheus that he hates humanity. Oh, great. And he just wants out of the Matrix. That that exchange of dialogue is fantastic. That is the highlight of his performance in the movie. Yeah, and but what makes that work, first of all, as a, the character of Smith has a bit of a fundamental flaw within, not within his writing, but within what the character is supposed to be. This, the... Agent programs are described as being sentient. Now, sentient means self-aware. Inevitably, with self-awareness comes, be it self-doubt, desires, all these fun things that humans experience. And with 
Smith, what we see, especially later, but we get glimpses of it in the first one, is this sort of fundamental clash between him being programmed to perform a certain set of actions, a certain he's a program. That means he has programming that he must follow. But because he is intelligent, because he is self-aware, he is able, he then cultivates desires. He wants not to be in the matrix anymore. He wishes to leave, go back to the source, whatever. He just doesn't want to be there anymore. Yet he is programmed and compelled to stay. And this creates a very human kind of uh, bit of cognitive dissonance within him. And that's what leads to his insanity in the subsequent movies. His, everything he says, first of all, he has some of the best written dialogue of anyone in all three movies. Lawrence Fishburne has some great dialogue, and he has some great delivery of it, and there's some very interesting things that he says. But throughout all three movies, I think, Hugo Weaving gets the best dialogue. He is handed the cream of the crop, and he is able to just... His delivery, the timber of his voice, the way he manipulates his face, the fact that he goes from being straight... 90% of the time to just the abject hatred and revulsion that you see just through everything he does when he's talking with Morpheus about how much he hates humanity. It's in his eyes, it's in his face, it's in his body language. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, I I have nothing but good things to say about him, about his performance, about the way that character's written. Uh, I mean, even in the next two, he remains... Hugo Weaving is... Uh, probably the best thing about all three of these movies. And there's plenty of other good things. I think he's the best. I will say this. His dialogue seems to be the least uh, constipated and convoluted. Uh, All of the characters... (laughs) I was going to say, that comes from his perspective. It's easy to write nihilism that makes sense. Because... Mm-hmm. From a certain perspective, it is the simplest, most logical perspective to possibly have. So it's easy for it to make sense, for it to be simple and just let it resonate, whereas when you're trying to express some of the things that Morpheus or Neo express, it's a bit, dif- it's a bit different. And you have to delve into topics and verbiage that can be vague or a bit superfluous at times. Have it, finding different ways to express a discontent with the nature of existence is not terribly difficult, and it comes across very easily. Um. Okay. All right. Having a snack while we're doing the show. Um, and I've been trying to time it so that I'm not chewing when I'm supposed to be talking. All right. All right. Um, Carrie Ann Moss Carrie is just Ann- there. <laughs> she's she's sort of a dour love interest, <laughs> and she looks nice and pleather. I don't have anything else to say about her performance. I mean, it doesn't sound like I'm shitting on the movie, but, but like, it, it, it's definitely a, a movie made up of the sum of its parts. You know, individually, things are kind of, eh, whatever. But when you put them all together, you, you, have, you have a really outstanding thing here. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite characters in the movie, who definitely has a bit of philosophy about him, but it was very straightforward. It totally made sense. I was with this character, a little sad when he died, and that's the the, the uh, cipher. Uh, this is Joe the Pantoliano. last thing I want to talk about. Yeah, the last thing I want to talk about before we move on to Revolution uh, to uh, Reloaded. Um, Cipher's character, his his desire to go back into the Matrix and forget this all ever happened, 
I like that. I, I like the idea of... Mark, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Hello? Sorry, you were cutting out for me. It might have just been me. Um, I like the idea of the of the concept of happiness and slavery and exploring that. That some people are just not happy with freedom. Um, they don't know what to do with it, or the kind of freedom that they're experiencing is worse than the slavery that they experience. And that's kind of what he said. He was like, "I was happy in the Matrix. This this existence is shit." The food is shit. This life is shit, and I don't want to do it anymore. So I'll sell out my friends, and I get put in the matrix, and I'll live a happy life, and I won't know any different. And so who cares that my body is living in a pod? Fuck that. My consciousness is having an awesome existence. At least that's what it was supposed. That's what was supposed to happen. Um, in a weird way, I very much identified with that character, and I and I thought, as far as villains go, and this is, this is your expertise. He's probably one of the best, because, you know, the other villain is Smith, and he's got a whole other thing going on. I thought he was one of the best handled villains in an action movie, uh, in terms of being the uh, the turncoat, the betrayer. I've seen in, in, in any number of movies, I think he's one of the best. Well, it, you mentioned again that... The internal turncoat is a very lo- is a long-standing tradition within the action genre. Uh, any given Schwarzenegger movie will have it uh, to, to varying degrees. I mean, you had uh, Carl Weathers in Predator. Uh, you had Robert Downey Jr. If you count U.S. Marshals that same way, and I tend to. Uh, I mean, there, there's plenty of examples. Dolph Lundgren, theoretically, in uh, the first Expendables movie, a little bit. There's a lot of them, and generally speaking, their discontent is, uh, it seems petty, which is an, and many times that's because that's how it's presented. But they just, you know, they don't like the people they're working with, they want more money, they go a little crazy. There's all these reasons that are generally just, they feel more like plot devices than genuine character development not. In the case of Cypher, here you have a guy who just looks at two possible existences and says, like you said, no, I, if I have to live in a world where I can't have a good medium-rare steak, I don't want to live in that world. Makes perfect sense to me. I'm a bit of a carnivore yep. myself. Yeah. And so, again, his motivations make sense from a philosophical standpoint. They make sense from a character standpoint. And you have Joe Pantoliano, who's just got enough weasel in him, that, even when he's playing a good guy, to be a little bit unsettling. <laughs> and you, you know, I mean, the reality of the situation is we're delving into the deep hypothetical that the Matrix was real. We, were at, we actually were living within that particular existence. There's a substantial part of the population that would be more than happy to stay there. And as Absolutely. him as a representative of that, and and you combine his basic his basic philosophy of I was happy with the kind of abject, not abject misery, but the deeply unsatisfying existence he lives now outside of the matrix, and again just the general philosophy that he kind of represents. He's a very well handled villain, and especially again like you mentioned, the internal turncoat. There's not a whole lot of guys who do it better. Nope. Um, so overall, it's no wonder this spawned um, this spawned 
a franchise, uh, you know, a series of cartoons, video games, etc. This was a, you know, for for all the all the deconstruction we're we're doing of the movie, it was very well done. done. Overall, I have very I have very little complaints about the plot and about the action in it. Um, you know, we're we're finding things to sort of pick at, but overall, Matrix is as good as you're going to get in a modern action movie, especially oh, that one that final was handled. Twenty minutes is awesome. Yeah. Um, that whole from the time he walks through the metal detector to the final sequence is one of the best bits of movie that you'll ever see, especially within an action movie. Yeah, I like when he flashes the guns as he's being wanded. <laughs> the character's like, "What the hell?" Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, the bit with the helicopter is fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, when it, when it comes to mo- when it comes to modern action movie making, which focus more on boom and less on plot, you don't get much better than the Matrix. And from here, as we say on the long road to ruin, things go. Things go. Um. Yeah. They've been uh, reloaded, but there's so many more bad things. And look, let me let me say this. Say this. Can I watch these movies over and over and over again? I own the Blu-rays. Sure. Definitely the first two. Not so sure about the third one. But there is definitely value in rewatching the movies if you turn your brain off. Unfortunately, these are movies that are very hard to turn your brain off and watch. Because of the philosophical elements to them, so I, I want to break this down, and we'll first let, let's talk about the plot here. If I can manage to get myself through this, um, <laughs> All so right. uh, it's so Neo is Kung Fu Jesus. He's the one, and, uh, and the, the the movie takes a broader look at the world of the Matrix. This is where you get to see Zion, and you get to see the people living there, and the internal politics of the place, and um, the, there's a uh, more, uh, more discussion of relationships of the primary characters like Morpheus. Um, you know, we have more characters introduced like Jada Pinkett, uh, and, and that whole group, that whole group. Um, um, essentially we have what I, uh, as what I, uh, what I was able to ascertain, the robots are on the move. They're going to attack Zion and they're digging underneath the earth in order to get through their defenses. And Morpheus chooses this time to say, okay, well, we need to go see the Oracle because the one is supposed to do something, go to the source, and if he goes to the source, then the war will end. Okay. So um, this pisses off, I don't remember who the actor's name is, but this pisses Harry off Morpheus' Morpheus's rival to no one um, because he thinks he, they need every ship in the fleet to deflect the uh, incursion of the robots, and the council says, nope, <laughs> go, uh, not, not only do we let them go, but then we're going to send two ships to go find them. Um, um, great scene. I just don't understand. In any case, um, so, so Neo's journey in this movie is to get to the source, and along the way, we um, he's got to go see the Oracle, uh, and from there, he goes. He's told to go get the key, ma- the keymaker, who's being held captive by the Merovingian. Um, there's this elongated car chase scene set to a Juno reactor song, which is awesome, by the way. Um, they get the keymaker. They get to the source, and there's where Neo meets the architect. 
the architect says you can choose door number one or door number two. Um, but uh, if you you know if if you make the wrong choice, then you'll upset the balance of the universe and everybody will die. Um, and that's exactly the door he chose. <laughs> he he goes to save Trinity, who um, much like Hayden Christensen in the third prequel movie, keeps having dreams that his beloved is going to die. So that becomes his. So instead of saving the universe, his only ma- his only care in the world is to make sure this broad doesn't die. I will come back to that later because boy, am I getting sick of that. In any case, you know, <laughs> I care nothing for the universe, but my girlfriend might die. Everything has to stop. In any case, he chooses door number two. He saves Trinity. He discovers he has he has other god powers, and. Uh, they go back to Zion. The robots charge the Nebuchadnezzar. They blow it up. They they go to hunt the humans. And Neo suddenly discovers that he has god powers in real life, and in the Matrix as well. He does his he does a force stop. <laughs> the, the robots all fall down. He goes unconscious. Uh, there's another turncoat uh, revealed in the movie. He's unconscious too, and that's where the movie ends. Did I miss anything? No, not really. Okay. Um, so let's talk about, first of all, the plot of this thing. I don't remember them talking about this much uh, in the first movie, but you know, in terms of what are we going to make the hero do this time, um, and what did you think about that? Did you think that was a strong enough um, motivation for our hero, a strong enough hero's arc? You know, he has to find the source, and if he finds the source, the war will be over. Was that was that adequately explained to you? Was that acceptable? Well, okay, a couple of things. First of all, okay, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit as far as uh, chronology goes, because the original Matrix, the Wachowski brothers, actually had the whole world, the whole mythology in mind. But given the constraints of their budget, uh, the fact that it was sci-fi in 1999, which was extraordinarily hit or miss, they chose not to explore certain aspects of it because they didn't want to make part one of three and have the movie flop and never be able to make two and three. So there are elements that get short, elements of the story and the philosophy in one that are shortchanged. That they wind up that they wind up expounding on in two. They mention the prophecy that is never fully discussed, and we wind up with again some slight vagaries. But elements of it are discussed in more detail here that probably would have been included during the exposition of part one of three. That for various reasons they were not able to discuss. Now, the potential for ending the war that humanity has been waging with machines is absolutely adequate motivation. The war has been going on for hundreds if not thousands of years to their knowledge i mean of course we learn a little bit more that yes it's been going on for quite some time and the ability and the opportunity to end that permanently is more than enough motivation for anyone by and large apart from the most selfish and cowardly and neo has certainly been established as the antithesis of that so no absolutely adequate motivation okay um, let, let's just cut right to the chase. Now, normally, and we talked about this with Transformers, you know, setting up a universe and living in that universe for a little while. 
you know, giving adequate time on screen to live in that universe so that you can become attached to it, so that when it's threatened, you know, you're not just you know yawning, you know, that you are that you are with those characters who are losing their home uh, to the monsters, and that's all well and good. So I didn't mind the slow start, you know, once we got past the Trinity Dream sequence. Um, I didn't mind the slow start and all the time spent on Zion, sort of exploring that world. Uh, I enjoyed, actually, the uh, Neo, uh, Neo having to deal with him being Kung Fu Jesus and what that meant to the residents of Zion and how that was affecting his life. However, the movie stops fucking dead in the joint interlocking scenes between Trinity and him having sex and the big giant cave rave. It went on for too long, number one. Number two, what did that tell you about these people? What did seeing Neo and Trinity having sex tell us about either It wasn't as if they used that opportunity to have Neo having flashes of her being dead and him unable to perform or something like that, which would have been fine and I could have accepted it, but it just seemed like it was a gratuitous sex scene Tied to a gratuitous dance scene that told me nothing about nobody, and it made it, it was like uncomfortable to watch. And ever, and I have never, never, every time I have watched uh, Reloaded, I have never been able to get through that scene without having to get up and go do something else or distract myself or whatever. I remember being in the movie theater, go, going, looking around at my friends, going, uh, uh, "Really? Is this what we're gonna watch? Because I'm gonna go watch something else." Jesus Christ! Could you can you in any way defend the length of that scene? The length? Absolutely not. Goes on far too long. Now I agree with you that for whatever reason the decisions made there grind elements of the movie to a halt, and then we basically have to restart it. Not a clean turn of the key, mind you. This is okay, everybody. It's a manual, so thankfully, if we all push it uphill while it's in neutral, we can pop the clutch and restart everything going on with this movie kind of moment. The basic... (laughs) I feel like the basic philosophy behind that scene, what they're trying to show, is reminiscent of a functionally throwaway line from the character Mouse in the first movie, He brings up the point that to deny our urges is to deny what actually makes us human and therefore what's worth fighting for and all that fun stuff, which is not an uninteresting philosophical debate, but unfortunately it's one of those things that there is a line, and you fall on one side or you fall on the other, and you wind up screaming bumper sticker logic at each other, so there's really no point in discussing it. And this is just kind of the visual representation of that philosophy, which is probably part of the reason that I find it so gratuitous overlong, and subsequently pointless. I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot good to say about that whole, what is it, like a five-minute? You have five, It's somewhere between five and ten minutes long. Imagine that I mean, you could have just cut that completely out of the movie, and it would have been fine. Yeah. yeah. All Morpheus had to say is, they will, you know, they can take our land, but they will not take our freedom, or today is the day of our independence, you know, or we, I have you know, dream. we will greet the monsters at our door. What was that? He's he's essentially aping Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, which is fine and dandy. It's a great sure. speech. But sure. My issue with Morpheus... <laughs> whatever, whatever, movie, it is, whatever it is, 
Uh, hang on, hang on. My issue with Morpheus in this movie is that when he's in the real world, he seems to be, again, a bit of the Dr. King character type of thing. When he's in the Matrix, he somehow turns into the slower version of Adam West's Batman with his line delivery. <laughs> yes, hence our earlier discussion. Yeah, I was okay I was, with there, the thing. Look, I, I like mind it in the first one. It, I don't know what it is about his about his line pacing. In the first one, it's just slow enough to kind of keep your to kind of keep your attention to lend some gravity to what he's saying. In the second one, it's like I know there's another half to this sentence. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> like he delivered the like he delivered the entire bit of dialogue on glue. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, Neo. Um, yeah, I, I I liked Morpheus and then sort of the love triangle with him, Jada Pinkett, and 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 the other uh, Lennox Lewis, whatever his name is. Um, Harry Lennox. You know, I like I, I like um, the rivalry he has with Annie Lennox. That 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 was great. And had they just had the you know like we don't want him to speak, well, we're gonna let him speak anyway. But today is the day of our independence. And yay, Morpheus! And then flash to the guy. I hate you, Morpheus. Cut. Just cut at that point. Let's get on with the movie. Nope. 20 minutes of dancing. I there's a, a confused... Incidentally, there's an odd bit of... I don't know if this is just urban legend or or what have you, but all three of these movies carry an R rating. My understanding is the people responsible for these movies, and the producers and the studios very much wanted an R rating. And I feel like there are certain things thrown into all three of these movies that are done just to attain the R rating. Now, in the first movie, uh, my understanding, and again, this may just be urban myth, so take as much salt as you feel necessary with this particular story, everybody. But they, when sending this to the MPAA, which is an... Uh, I don't want to get into that whole this, some of the stuff that comes out of that organization is completely different. But get on when, with it. Pit, when pitching it, they made a big point about the cannibalism aspect of that movie. Now you all might be going, wait, 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 what? Cannibalism? Now that's because the only mention of cannibalism within that particular film is when Morpheus is discussing the nature of the machines in the Matrix. He mentions that. The dead humans, once they've expired, run out of juice, are liquefied and fed intravenously to the living. Now, technically, that's one human being consuming another, ergo cannibalism. And they made a big point about pitching that to the people handing down the ratings, and it contributed to the R rating in addition to the Marilyn Manson song, which contains profanity that is only heard over the latter third of the credits. Anyway, they do things to kind of get the R rating, and I'm not, I'm not sure why. But that was, again, possibly urban legend, but that's the story I was told. And when you get to two and three, you now get gratuitous, pointless nudity thrown in here and there. Keanu Reeves swearing vociferously in the background during his conversation with the architect. You get stuff like that that's there just to kind of coax an R rating because they're not comfortable with a PG-13 dealing with the subject material that they have here. So that's why you get crap. I feel like that's why you get crap like that. Because if we do just enough of this, it'll get the rating we want. 
same. I mean, the reverse is true for many a PG-13 movie. Well, let's cut some stuff so we get the rating we want, and it comes out looking poor. In this case, it grinds the movie to a halt. In other cases, you get bad edits and jump cuts that make you go, what the hell is going on? I just I don't understand how that how that scene survived editing, like how how they didn't sit through the and if it did, and if we had the and if we had the Wachowski brothers here right now, um, and like oh actually it was a lot longer we we had to cut that down. What <laughs> what were you trying to? <laughs> the whole Harold hour just... decided that no you will not take my pants off on film again. I did that for Oz. I'm not doing it for you guys. <laughs> God, um, I, I don't think any more needs to be said about that. Um, the conversation that followed. No, let's not fixate followed. on the one. I mean, that, that's hands down the worst. I feel part of this of this movie. So let's move on to the positive stuff because, elsewise, we're we're allowing the horribleness of that scene to grind our podcast to a halt, and I will not let them win. No, I'm I'm okay with it. I, I it's one one of the things about doing long road to ruin is it allows me to do the rants that I've been holding inside about certain movies. It allows me to express them. I've now gotten that one out of my system. Check. Let's move on. Um, so is. I will say the conversation the conversation that follows with Neo and one of the only other elder white people in the movie. Um, oh. They're talking about control. What what is the what is the meaning of control and you know, Neo says something really profound, like, well, we can turn the machines off. And, he, and the guy goes, that's very true. I guess, you know, you hit the nail right on the head. Of course, if we do, then how would we breathe? And how would we survive down here? Blah, blah, yakety, schmackety. And um, at one point, Neo goes, Neo, Neo says, almost asking the question of, you know, almost on behalf of the audience, sir, what's your point? And he goes, I'm an old man. I don't have any point. I'm bringing this up because this happens a lot throughout the, the next two movies. Um, Reloaded and Revolution, I feel like the writing and the directing was a lot of, I want to do this. Does it have a point? No, but I want to do it anyway. Okay. It's kind of like Quentin Tarantino dialogue. It serves no purpose. It may sound cool, but it, it's just there doing nothing. And I hate that. I've long since gotten over the idea of putting shit in movies just to do it. You know, j- just to be cool or to have a cool thing. I don't like wasted motion on film. And I feel like when you have a character literally saying, I have no point. <laughs> so I have no point. I'm not trying to get you to go anywhere. At least when the Emperor sat next to uh, Hayden Christensen in, in, you know, in the, uh, during the space opera... The whole point was to seduce him, uh, you know, to the to power of the dark side. Bring, you know, and say, hey, if you come to the dark side, you can bring your beloved back to life or stop her from dying. Eh, eh. Want to check it out? You want to take it for a test drive? That was fine. However, hackneyed it was done. At least there was a point to it. You have this is a good five minutes of dialogue between these two, and at the end of it, he's like, I have no point. I'm an old man. Rick, your witness. I actually disagree a little bit. I feel now I understand what you're saying about the guy saying he has no point. However, there's a there's a substantial difference between the character not having a point and the scene not having a point. This oh, I, I, I want. Please explain to me what the point of that scene was. Then what what we're other than other than a conversation about control. What does the conversation of the definition of control lend to the movie at large? 
Well, when you consider that so much of this movie deals with choice, and the analog between choice and control is extraordinarily... I mean, there's a, they're, in, they're irrevocably twined together. The fact that you can control something means you have choice, and vice versa, generally speaking. Now, when you, when you look at how much of this movie deals with Neo and the eventual choice he winds up making... And sort of the deeper kind of philosophical question that gets asked, and since these movies are, generally speaking, an, analog, uh, an allegory for the Christ story, uh, I, I don't mean to dismiss any of our listeners who happen to have a different faith or no faith, or however you choose to live your life. I'm speaking purely within the context of the story here. And what they're trying to tell you, it actually raises a bunch of really fundamentally interesting questions about the nature of the atonement. And that's a bit more where that comes into play. But as for just this scene in general, it I, I feel first of all this is where Neo starts understand starts having a different perspective. I mean, he mentions that it's a bit hackneyed, and there's a lot of and you know, uh, but his thing about oh, so humans and machines need each other. Well, it sounds stupid and cliche, but there's a degree of there's certainly a degree of truth to it at this particular point in human existence. And that's a bit of what comes out of this and the fact that it, this is something they don't really touch on, but the fact that lasting peace only happens through understanding the symbiotic relationships and the interconnectivity of all things, this is where he starts, his mind starts working a bit towards that particular dynamic as opposed to what he had been thinking about. This is, I feel this is kind of where he starts seeing big picture instead of small picture. I think when you connected to... Uh, you know when you when you when you connect um control to choice and choice is the big theme especially when he meets the architect and he has to choose between uh, hitting the reset button on Zion or saving trinity and sacrificing the human race at large um i i i get your point and i have less of an issue with it it was just one thing that, it, as I watched the movie today, it just jumped out at me, going, "Because I, I, I hadn't thought about that when I when I listened to it." And I think that's and I think that's a failure of the scene. Um, you know, going back and sort of reflecting reflecting about it. Okay, I can now salvage that in my mind, but upon first, second, and third viewing of it, I, I didn't get it. So you know, the fact that like you have, I think if 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 you don't get it. And you kind of have to have another person sort of hip you to it. I'm not entirely sure that 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 isn't a failure of the movie itself and the people who put it together. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm just dumb. Um, and other people got it. But um, let, let's move on past that. Um, the Oracle, the Merovingian, and the Architect. We can't move on to revolutions without talking about these three scenes. Um, when he goes to see the... First of all, I didn't understand the point of him having to fight to go see the Oracle, other than they, they'd gone too long without a fight scene. Um, well, there's just two sort of things to that. First of, there's a few things to that uh, that I feel like are worth touching on. One is, yeah, they'd gone too long without some kind of either legitimately interesting bits of dialogue or an action scene, and we kind of hit the threshold there, so we need one. Two, it just makes sense. I mean, you are aware, I mean, the Matrix, you know, then when you understand kind of the nature of the Oracle and the other exiles, 
uh, caution is more than called for. So having a bodyguard and having him you know, have to prove himself makes sense on that front. The other thing is this is the first they glimpse we get. They didn't know who he was? Wait, wait, wait. They, so essentially what you're saying, the whole point of that was they needed to check his ID. They didn't know who Neo was? Kung Fu Jesus? Well, apparently he'd he never met Sarah before. I don't know as far as that. I, I'm just saying that's kind of the lo- that's kind of the logic there. And don't get me wrong, it's uh, I imagine that's just that with kind of the Matrix starting to go to hell at that point, there's an extra layer of precaution around all things. And it could have been that there's the other odd line that's thrown in there by Seraph that you don't know someone until you fight them. So he might have just wanted to get to know Neo and felt this was faster than a conversation. I'll tell you why I don't, hey, don't, this. Don't get, don't get me wrong. It's a little. It's odd logic, but if you're looking for it, I can present it to you. The other thing that's interesting is Seraph is our first glimpse at the coding that is yellow, which in the world of the Matrix represents more the spiritual side of things. Because you have, again, the green that represents the manufactured reality of the Matrix, the blue color palette that represents reality. Then you have the yellow stuff that deals with Again, what is within the allegory of the Matrix, everything that falls on the more spiritual side of things. And you, this is where Seraph and the Oracle and uh, a later portion, the Smiths, and by the end, certainly all of the, everything that comes out of the source. That's more, what, uh, that's more what that's reflective of. So that's our first glimpse into kind of the third understanding of their existence, of their realities. Um, real quick, here, here's why it's gratuitous. Um, the fight scenes... You have to vary them in some way. I know a lot of people hated the the fight scene that follows this with the Zillion Smiths, but at least I disagree with those people mess. vehemently. A lot of people, it looked like a CGI mess. Um, it went on too long. I happen to agree with you. I disagree with those people. I thought that fight scene was great. And in contrast, I felt the fight scene with. from Return of the Jedi at this point. He, you don't, you know, we don't need, if you're not going to show me something different, then don't show me anything at all. Film as a visual medium. So even a short fight scene, I still feel is gratuitous if you don't do something new with it, if you don't show me something that we hadn't already seen. At least with the Smiths, there was a lot going on. It was him having to fight a zillion guys, and then he was, you know, doing the thing with the, uh, with the pole, um, so all that was great. In any case, um, moving on to the Oracle. So he goes to see the Oracle, and the, and the, and, um, the Oracle... Uh, God, if I can remember how this bit of dialogue goes. Um, I'll try and help you. She tells him... She tells him she, well, I know the big thing that, that we get out of this scene is she tells him to, that uh, in order to get to the source, he needs the, key ma- he needs the key maker, and the key maker is being held captive by the Merovingian. So you know, it's with this scene we get we we get the whole middle part of the movie, um, which is fine. I don't I don't mind it. I don't mind an exposition dump here, and I don't mind kind of a setup, you know, a plot device to get us going in another direction of the movie. I'm okay with that. the The problem is everything else in the movie uh, that she says to him. Um, this is another another one insisting that I think Trinity has to die, and uh, I don't know. Jump in here, help me out. Well. 
I actually find her uh, the philosophical point of view that she expounds uh, expounds upon to be really fascinating, and there's a lot of reasons for that. That, but what she, the big the line that she kind of repeats to Neo more than once is, "You've already made the choice. You're just trying to understand it." And there's depending on how you view the nature of time, it is actually an extraordinarily accurate philosophy. Especially when you, again, since we're continuing with uh, the Christian allegory here, the nature of how God perceives time is uh, the closest thing you've e- we've ever gotten to having it represented is uh, the Dr. Manhattan character from either version, actually, of The Watchmen, either the graphic novel or the movie. He perceives all things simultaneously. Consequently, everything has already happened. And everything is happening at the same time. Now, that's beyond the nature of human comprehension, by, uh, obviously. But that's kind of the fundamental theory she's expressing to him, that you've already made your choice, you're just trying to figure out why you did it. And that's her perspective on things. And it, Which is a really fascinating bit of, again, philosophy that goes along there. And the other thing about that is once you understand, again, once we get our exposition from the architect, rethinking about what she's saying within the context of, by the way, this has already happened half a dozen times, at least, depending on your reckoning. It just adds a whole different layer to kind of what she's saying about that. And I mean, by the same token, that same bit of logic applies to Morpheus in the first one, when he talks about the man who first freed people from the Matrix and taught them about the war and started the resistance. Well, given the given the cyclical nature of the one and what it represents and how the Matrix has to reset itself, that was actually just another version of Neo that had started everything all over again. So it's a really it, it's really just kind of within that circular logical philosophy type thing. It's really fascinating stuff. But within the context of the movie, I understand your point. Um, so then we get the big Agent Smith fight scene, um, and we move on to. In terms of characters espousing philosophy and just talking, this was one of the only scenes I truly enjoyed. I enjoyed the performance. I liked what the character was saying. I was able to follow it for the most part the first time. I mean, on, upon subsequent viewings and really tuning in and listening, I, you know, I'm getting what the other characters are saying now too. But I remember the first time I watched this. And the oracle talked in circles. The architect talked in circles. The only oh, the architect one who actually me... talks. Hang on. The architect actually speaks plain logic. He just does it in a different language. <laughs> sure. Um, but the one that the the only of, of, of your philosophical characters in this movie, the one that made the most sense to me was the Merovingian. Loved his character. Loved his his line delivery. I liked his spiel. You know, he the, the cause and effect. I like the fact that, you know, he's a smarmy villain. You know, essentially, he goes, the only reason why you came here was because you were told to. And since you're so good at following orders and you've come to me with no other reason than you were told to be here, I won't give you the, 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 key, the key maker and you can piss off. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Makes total sense to me. Um I I I thought the Mer- I, I know people hated him. Ab- I remember talking to people when the movie was over. People absolutely hated the Merovingian, and I think it's because by that point people were just done. 
<laughs> with, with, with long lines of philosophical dialogue. But if you throw out everything else and you just focus on his scene, I really enjoyed that performance. I enjoyed the whole that that I enjoyed the give and take there of you know you want something but you offer me nothing in return. You don't even know why you want it. Fuck off. Yeah, I I was with you the whole way, Merovingian. Here's where that whole thing completely falls apart for me, and it's such a shame because because Monica Bellucci, ah, what a dress, what a chest, what a dress. Monica Bellucci is awesome, but um, what she does in this movie pissed me. And I t- we talked about this offline, uh, our show. Um, she pissed me off to the point where the movie stopped as dead for me a second time. This is one of the few experiences I've had where the, where the movie comes to a grinding halt in two places. And so the Merovingian basically says, "You, you, he he pulls a Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory." You don't deserve the Keymaster, and you will never get the Keymaster, and walks away. Um, and that's the end of that. So the, they walk away kind of defeated. They don't know what to do next. And Monica Bellucci says, come with me into the men's room. I have an, you know, <laughs> I, have, I have an idea. And she says, I'll give you the Keymaster, uh, essentially just to piss off uh, the Merovingian character. And she says, but I want a kiss. <sighs> This whole scene felt forced. It felt like they were sitting in a writer's room and they didn't know how to. What, you know, once the Merovingians said no, they didn't know how to get the Keymaster to uh, to Neo with, you know, and they just kind of made this up just to get to keep the movie going. But it 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 was just a very square peg in a round hole kind of scene for me. And to, to what end? It it doesn't test the relationship between Trinity and Neo in any kind of way. They they still love each other. Uh, Trinity doesn't even get a chance to shoot her. It's it's just nothing. It's it's just like I don't I don't understand what the point of her of them writing that in was, other than we want to see our we. You know, Want to see Keanu Reeves kiss Monica Bellucci for some odd reason? I mean, well, I imagine I that after it. having it to just... be with Carrie Ann Moss for the majority of it, Keanu Reeves might have tacked on a writer. <laughs> it wasn't in the movie at all. Keanu Reeves was like, "Could you just write me a scene where you know, or you know, where, where I uh, motorboat Monica Bellucci?" Well, no, but how about if you just kiss her? Oh, fine. Oh no. I'm... I want to backtrack briefly because I feel there's an important... uh, First of all, the Smiths fight scene, one of my favorite things in the world. Now, don't get me wrong, I am well aware of the flaws. I know why people don't like it. Certainly the CGI looks a tad dated nowadays. But it's just so much fun. I can't help but enjoy that particular fight scene every time I watch it. But Smith's bit of exposition about why he's still there is a really interesting bit, especially when you begin setting up, again, this is going to sound a little bit repetitious, but continuing with the overall allegory of the Christ story, which is what these whole movies are. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of other stuff to enjoy in them, but that's, I believe, I firmly believe that's the standpoint from which they're written. When you establish the Merovingian as your devil character, Smith has to represent something completely different then, because he's not the devil, 
he winds up being just kind of the fundamental worst of human nature, which is the actual thing that Christianity is fighting against, and the devil is simply on the side of that. And I don't want to delve into the whole religious philosophy of it. But you have to, but again, here we're setting up Smith as something different than the Merovingian, who is your analog for the devil. And if you needed a little, if you again, if there's any further clue needed for as to that's precisely what he is, then his wife is Persephone, who is in Greek mythology the wife of the devil. Of course, in that case, it's Hades. But again, the point being, that's our analog here, and his character and his philosophy of cause and effect is reminiscent of what's referred to as the false philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, that, which is just an extraordinarily hollow existence when you get down to it. And that's kind of what I feel the whole purpose of the scene with Monica Bellucci is, in addition to Keanu Reeves wanting to kiss her. You get the reality of the way they're living in this you know, kind of floating uh, boat of sensation and pointless decadence, which we get a lot more of in the third one during their brief scene there. And her whole desire is to feel some kind of legitimate connection. I can't say human because, again, she's a program. But she wants to feel that bit of legitimate kind of pure emotional connection that her existence is completely devoid of. So that's the one thing in the world she wants right now. In addition to getting back at her husband for being a philandering, uh, long-winded French douchebag. So that, that's kind of what I took away from that scene. It's, it kind of represents the overall hollowness of the pure causal existence, and you wind up wanting something that is much more emotionally and spiritually substantial, and that's what she's trying to get for that one brief moment from Neo. My Which take. is all well and good, except that it has no other connection to any other part of the movie. And, I and I think this is the that. <laughs> and but but okay, but we're talking about craft and construction of movies here on this podcast, and so you can you can extract a scene from a movie and say, in and of itself, I like this scene. I like the performance. I get what's happening here. You know, when you look at the the makeup of a scene, you can say, in and of itself, by itself, this thing works on all of these levels. Here's the problem. When you insert that scene into the overall movie, either it connects or it doesn't connect. You know, it it would be kind of like you know you have a car and you 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 put a p you you put a perfectly good piece of technology in the car, but it doesn't work with the rest of the car. Um, you know, it causes the thing to to run clunky or you know run poorly, whatever. It just doesn't belong there. And I think that's that's my overall criticism with with the with the Matrix sequels is they got and this is what I mean by a lot of the, a lot of the storytelling and the um, the dialogue gets overly constipated and I feel like they they lost sight of what it was they were trying the story they were trying to tell you know if this your plot your story has to be your backbone and they threw so much fat on this on it. That it started to it started to weigh it down, and the Monica Bellucci kissing scene. While I get everything that you said before, and I think that's a great explanation, is still just fat. It's fat, and it had no place in the movie. Well, it had a place in the movie once the Merovingian said no. You need a you need a 
plot device to get them to the Keymaster. That's the device they chose. And whether or not that in and of itself is completely necessary is a whole other bit of you know how the script is constructed, but that's the point that it serves as far as that goes. And it leads us into them finding the Keymaker, who's a nice little man. And... Uh, <laughs> I I get a kick out of that guy. It's the oddest thing, but watching him kind of run around weighed down by keys, it just amuses me. Yeah, I like every time that he was threatened, he was like, I got to get out of here. (laughs) He would like rummage through his collection of keys and go through random doors. It was great. I imagine um, there's a video game character that that people have flashbacks to. I haven't had one, but... Of all the video games that I've played where you have to protect someone and at the slightest bit of trouble they run in the absolute wrong direction and how deeply frustrating that is, I imagine that this one caused a lot of flashbacks. Sure. Um, um, in the interest of time, I wanna g- I'll, I'll leave a little bit of time for you to just bring up anything that you, that you want to talk about with regards to Reloaded, but I want to skip right to the very end. Um, and that is when Neo uses his uh, magic powers in the real world to uh, bring down the machines and then falls into a coma. Now, I love this ending. I really do. What a twist. What a twist. What a twist. What a, what a way to end the movie. I was so excited for Revolutions uh, based solely on... The he was able to use his whatever magic powers he was discovering about himself. He was like, I can feel them. Somehow he had this intrinsic connection to the machines that came out of nowhere, and he used it to bring them down. And I remember, I have a very fond memory, and this is why I'm bringing it up. I have a very fond memory of, uh, in between those the two sequels, um, going to Disney with a bunch of my friends. I was still living in New York at the time. And we were at Epcot, and we were online for Test Track. And I remember a bunch of us just very excitedly exploring possible reasons why he was able to do that. And we were so—I haven't—I at the time I hadn't been so excited for a uh, for a movie for a uh, a sequel. Um, just based on that, I wanted to know. I, they 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 had me. They had me on a hook. I wanted to know what was the reason Neo could feel the machines and and use force magic essentially to bring them down. And then we get there and I haven't been so disappointed since the time, since uh seeing the Phantom Menace. There's no explanation given as to how he was able to do that. He's never able he's seemingly never able to do it again. And that I recall, I mean, you saw the third movie recently, and I don't remember him doing it. Maybe I'm wrong, but it just you felt are. like they threw it. Okay, they throw it in at the end, and then the, and then the third movie, and they do the stupid thing with the train station, and they never explain it. And it was like, oh, all that time I sat talking to my friends about this, compl- you know, and we all had great, you know, great explanations for why he was able to do it and what and, and how that was going to affect the third movie. And it was like, I just felt like the writers just took a big giant shit on all the fans. <laughs> so, 
like I watch it and I'm like, oh, I, lo- I really love this ending. And then I remember the th- the third one will give me no satisfaction in terms of an explanation, and it makes me then hate it. Okay. Um, two things about the end of uh, talking about Reloaded before I jump into Revolutions. First of all, I love the freeway chase scene. Uh, oh, yeah. One of the best car chase sequences on film. I mean, the only thing the, I would the, throw up there... The, the white ghost guys, I think, are great. I love their reactions to things. I, I love their their magic powers. I thought I, I thought that was a nice twi- a nice twist in terms of uh, henchmen. Yeah, they were they were fun, as were some of the other ones. Um, but the fact that, first of all, for that film, they built their own freeway so they could shoot on it. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then blew up half of it. I mean, it's one of my favorite chase sequences in automobiles ever. There's only a handful that I would put above it. Of course, that list for me at the moment begins and ends with the tanker sequence and uh, the Road Warrior, but that's a different story. And here's the thing about him being able to mess with the machines. You actually do get a perfectly serviceable explanation. It's just sadly not expounded on very much and is not dealt with in a terribly interesting manner. Uh, if you, This is one of those things. Uh, the scene wherein he, where Neo is given his exposition by the architect, I again, the reason I know I understood this more the second time around was partially because again, my friend uh, who I'm going to plug very briefly, uh, Tom Skidmore, who is just a huge fan of these movies, mentioned that you know if you know about computer coding, what he says makes a lot more sense. If you don't understand anything, it's like you speak in Greek. And you happen to speak, you know, Ebonics. I don't know. There's just a huge language barrier. So I figured out. So I, you know, talked with a few people. Learned, you know, learned a little bit. I mean, people spend. You go to college for this crap. I'm not going to learn a lot about it, but enough so that I understood kind of the fundamentals of what he was saying. And that is, by and large, your explanation. It's expounded on very poorly. Expounded on in the next one by the Oracle. But the reason he's able to do what he's able to do to the machines has to deal with what he is the physical representation of, which is the, the anomaly within the Matrix, which is designed to keep people... I mean, they, they very succinctly describe it as the ability to choose, which is the one thing they can never fully account for within, any, within, the, within their computer systems. Now, the system they have allows for it it's just sadly represented in a glaring fashion by the one, in this case Neo. And given the given the inextric, given the intrinsic ties between the digital self, given how much time you spend in the Matrix, and the physical self, especially for Neo, who spent the first twenty some odd years of his life within the Matrix, he is now intrinsically linked to both the machine world and the human world through the Matrix. And because of that odd connection and the way the matrix functions in relation to the source and the fact that all the machines are connected together, he is able to, on occasion, on, in the first case, a very limited scale, manipulate the machines because he is connected very literally to them. Now, don't get me wrong, they don't explain it very well when you get to the third movie, but there is your explanation. So, what you're saying is that the statistical anomaly that is created for the sole purpose of 
getting uh, of every couple of years resetting the matrix and you know and keeping the thing going is able to live in the physical world. And again, this is a byproduct of the allegory they're creating where Christ is both divine and human at the same time. And All right. In the interest of time, I'm not going to I'm not going to scream that that made no that 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 doesn't make any sense. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, Judge Rattledge will allow it. This is a fictional story. And it, well, the the other thing there is the function of the one is not he's not written as part of the program. If anything, he's the antithesis of the program. He's just the physical representation of it that come that is a result of the mathematical formulas that make up the matrix. And every time he shows up, they have to reset him and reset everything else. And then he comes along again as an inevitable part of the cycle. And this is the one time which, at the end of Reloaded, he chooses a different path and breaks the the current cycle that they're in. Right. And this is why he's able to then sacrifice himself in revolutions because he's actually not a real boy. Uh, <laughs> no, I will... Uh, we'll get to that when we get to it. Well, no, that's 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 what it was. He's not a real boy, um, and he's yeah, able to God. talk to the machines, and and you know he's going to save the machine world and the Matrix from the Smiths that are destroying everything. But uh, you know, but he's not a real boy. We, we just went over all that. Um, no, he let's, is. Let's, he I, is I, absolutely I, human in the sense that he was born the way that the humans are born and grown within the context of the no, machine world. He's not a real boy. He was he's a statistical anomaly that's used no, he, yes, he serves the function he is the representation of the fundamental flaw within the equation, but as far as him being a real boy, as you say, no, he is absolutely human, it's just that oh, he's the not. flaw he's not. it's just that within the context of the mate of the matrix. He winds up absorbing, you know, again, that bit of code or becoming kind of the representation of it, which makes him, while this, well, he's simultaneously human and a good deal more than human. And this is, incidentally, everybody out there, this is what happens when you try to mix fundamentally limited understanding with religious concepts. It comes out odd. Well, here's the other thing is, and, and here's why, as I, as I think about it a little bit more, I guess I'm willing to accept that you know, at, on some level, he is a real boy. He his physical body did burst out of the pod. Yeah. So, so, so essentially, they 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 chose this particular human body to say, okay, you'll be you'll be uh, the code that you'll be the, the one who will implant the code in. That's the well, it's not even anomaly. deliberate on the part of the machines, which is kind of the kick in the teeth for the architect. It's just the randomness of the program and the nature of humanity. He's just okay. the one that it happened to fall to. Um, the first time I saw it, every, I, I was completely confused by everything the architect said. Uh, it just went way too fast for me, and the only th- and I didn't even understand the choice he was making other than to go save Trinity. I got that much. My, my primitive brain was able to pick that much up. Watching it, you know, a couple of more times, and then watching it again today, I, I got what the architect was basically saying. Um, you know, a lot of it we've already discussed. Um, the architect is a program, I'm guessing. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that was the other thing I wasn't. Yeah, he's a program. He's um, my understanding, because you also meet the nice Indian couple who are 
programmed within the machine world. They don't have physical bodies in the sense that, I mean, they might, I suppose they could choose to inhabit a construct within the machine world, but their consciousness exists purely on the digital medium. And the architect was a computer program designed to create the program that became the Matrix. Right. This is kind of like in the Hitchhiker's Guide where where they wrote a program that was supposed to create uh, that was supposed to create an Earth, and um, I don't I don't remember the jokes that go along with that, but this is a very similar thing. They wrote they create they created a computer that was then supposed to create the Earth that the yeah, Vogons that... then blew up. <laughs> the Vogons blew up to build a super sp- uh, space uh, highway. All right. Um, I, I've never seen or read the books. I've never seen the movies or read the books. So. Oh, you really should. The books are hilarious. All right. Anything else on uh, Revolution on uh, Reloaded? Nope, that was it. And I only brought that up All because right. it dovetails into the beginning of uh, Revolutions. Sure. Okay. Uh, now, in the interest of fairness, uh, we have about 15 minutes left. Um. And I'm going to lean on Robert for a lot of this discussion because it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. I was not able to watch it before this podcast. I know what I hate, though. <laughs> so, okay. In the spirit of in the spirit of that, I hate the beginning. Um, I I absolutely cannot stand how that movie begins with him running through the stupid tra- uh, train station. Um, and I get that the Merovingian was trying to keep him you know, out of play and on the bench, but still, I, it was just, what a letdown. Um, then you, uh, well, we'll start there. What, what uh, overall, first of all, give me your total defense of the movie. Let, 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 let's begin with this, because I felt like the movie just sort of celebrates gratuitousness by the end of it. <laughs> It's just, it just goes on forever. This, there's no, I don't feel like there's any satisfying ending to this. Um, I, I feel like uh, the heroes that you were supposed to connect with, both Neo and Trinity, both don't make it to the end of the movie, uh, as I recall. It's just, um, no, they don't. It just kind of falls, it just kind of falls flat for me. But you, you know, but you said that you have a positive defense of this movie. So here's your opportunity. Well, let me start off by when you say it's just a celebration of gratuity, which I understand the argument. Let me say this then: Would you have a conniption if I said that same statement applies to the Return of the King? Uh, only the last half an hour, because that's kind of the basic premise that, and I have argued this with other people as a general rule, I don't understand people who have a complaint when, especially trilogies that are designed to become more epic in scope, actually become more epic in scope. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is the fundamental goal of this movie. And I'll agree with you, the beginning, it gets off rough. Uh, the, scene at the, the scene in the train station is... One of those, I feel that whole scene was there to set up his interaction with the program so that he can further understand that, pardon the, you know, the jokey nature of this, but that machines are people too, which is more (laughs) the fundamental point of that. It's him to interact with some of the programs. It's also kind of how he starts understanding his connection because while the train station 
exists, you know, kind of in that weird place physically, it's actually a representation of like the line between the matrix and uh, the source that is the machine home world. And given his and given the nature of the one as being, you know, a bit of both as previously discussed, he's stuck kind of halfway in between at the moment, trying to figure out, you know, would he continue on to the source and effectively die, or would he go back to the matrix and keep fighting type thing? It's more the involuntary version of his discussion with uh, the architect. And again, I won't defend everything about that. I agree, it's a it's an odd way to start the movie. But um, as far as again gratuity for the whole, over the whole thing, I, I I just I have a fundamental disagreement in that it's designed to be an epic in scope trilogy, the same uh, within the same vein and same you know again overall scope as stuff like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. When you get to the third movies in each of those uh, trilogies, or the two in, the two separate trilogies for the fir- for the Star Wars ones, you get movies that are just by the very nature of their existences bigger. And that's just what we have here. Okay, it's, the me... logical, can, it's the logical step, it's, you know, theoretically. Can I can I stop the problem you there and the... talk about the difference between? Let me let me talk about the difference between what I remember of Revolutions and Lord of the Rings, except for the last half hour with the multiple endings. That was like Peter. I felt like that was Peter Jackson's. Like I don't ever want to leave this world, and him, you know, being drug out, kicking and screaming. Um, and, and it really did feel unnecessary. Um, but be, be that as it may, everything up to the coronation of Aragorn, I didn't feel was gratuitous. I don't. Um, even, I mean, I'm just saying. I feel that there, it's the same point. You're just aiming it at at uh, revolu- at revolution, no, when I, it could I, just I, as no, easily be aimed at Lord of the Rings. But no, that's that's what I'm saying. Is I disagree with you. I think there were um, there were fight scenes and there were there were scenes of the attack that were gratuitous that just went on too long and didn't serve the movie in any positive way that i i don't believe that that was the case in any of the scenes i mean the battle of pelinor fields you you had it had to be that way it had to be that length um you know the siege of the white uh, of the white city had to be that length um i don't know I, I can't see in any of what they did in Lord of the Rings a situation where they drug out a scene way too long. I mean, if anything, Aragorn showing up with the ghost and five seconds later the whole thing is over, you know, it's like, all right, well, that was rather abrupt. You know, it's it's the exact opposite of gratuitous. I feel like Lord of the Rings, you know, the way they handled the battle scenes served the movie, where I feel like in Revolutions... And this is my overall complaint about the Matrix trilogy. I feel like they were throwing stuff in just to throw things in there and dragging things out because they want it to be epic. And it doesn't serve the movie. I feel uh, Here's how I can sum this up. Other than the last half hour of Lord of the Rings, I don't believe Lord of the Rings suffers from a lack of editing. I do believe the Matrix does. I understand your point, and I think this is one of those things we're just going to wind up agreeing to disagree on. Okay. My perspective as far as, I mean, the primary scene, I believe, sequence I believe you're referring to, I can't exactly call it one scene, but the whole defense of Zion from the initial breach 
and I will I would give you that some of the uh, some of the uh, the time it takes uh, the crew to get back to Zion in the ship it takes a bit it could probably have been shaved down a little bit I, I understand your your point about some things could have been shaved. <laughs> Yes, this from the guy who did, who thought we spent too long of a time with uh, what's his face from Transformers. But we did because Mark Wahlberg <laughs> serves no purpose. See, ah. However, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I understand your point about it, you know the editing maybe could have been better. By the same token, I think the biggest problem with all three of these movies is there's a shift in the overall kind of tone and scope from movie to movie to movie. And a good trilogy, like Lord of the Rings, which we mentioned, builds on those from the small story in, Lord, in Fellowship of... I mean, it starts with Frodo getting the ring and slowly builds until it's saving the entire freaking world. Now, with these, you get the small-scale small introductory in the original movie... Which leads up, which is again small in scale. It's just we're trying to find the one. We believe we found him and his acceptance and becoming. Then him trying to figure out what he's supposed to do, and then him finally having, and then finally everything coming to a head and functionally exploding. Now the issue is the transition is not as smooth as maybe it could have been, but it remains, I feel, a logical progression in how they're telling the story. Okay, that's fair. So there's my positive spin on uh, as far as that goes. Now, the defense of – now, I actually really like the scene where they're defending the dock because I'm a sucker for kind of a well-constructed battle sequence, and I feel that is. Now, don't get me wrong. There's flaws. Uh, the Zion defense systems are – I mean, if that's the best they could muster, you wonder why they didn't get knocked out a whole lot sooner. The <laughs> characters that are defending Zion are so flat. We don't. This is my thing. We spend all of our time throughout the first two movies developing an attachment to Neo and Morpheus and Trinity and kind of the core group. That's expanded a little bit in the second one. The problem is when they're defending Zion, the people we care about are either traveling to the machine source or desperately trying to get back to Zion and detonate an EMP. Everyone actually right, defending the city has no right. real character, has no real development. We have no emotional investment in any of them. And that, that's a right, fundamental and flaw. And since you, since you brought it up earlier, I wanted to compare it to Lord of the Rings, where you got to know your main characters in Fellowship, and by uh, and by Return of the King, they had split them up. So all the characters that you cared about were th were in some part of that final battle. They you would you would never you would never in a scene with a character like you're describing here, where you where where there's people on screen who you have no attachment to. You know there are scenes with ju with, with just Gandalf and Pippin. Uh, or, or rather, Merryweather. You know, you've got uh, even uh, Faramir. You know, you got to know him in the second movie, and so when you know, and when he uh, he ends up nearly being killed, and then drugged back on a horse, and uh, you know, and there's there's scenes in the special editions where him and what's her face, 
from um, uh, Rohan are, are getting yeah are getting together. You know, you you had a you had an entire first two movies to get to know all of these people. You, there's never a situation where you're like, why am I watching these random characters who I have no attachment to? That again, that's a flaw of the movie right there. Yeah, like when I say I have a positive perspective on these movies, that's absolutely true. That in no way, shape, or form means I think they're perfect. <laughs> well, I should hope not. Well, and again, I'm a sucker um, for a well-constructed battle sequence, so I like the defense of the docks, and as a man who's played more than his share of tower defenses and through the Gears of War franchise a couple of times, I'm familiar with that aesthetic and kind of the feel they're going for, so I like it, and it appeals to me. Unfortunately, again, the big issue is there's no emotional connection to the characters. We're just watching action without, again, an emotional center to it apart from Oh crap! Are they actually going to get the door open, or is Morpheus and Niobe going to crash heads? Get a crash, full tilt, full tilt into this giant door. I mean, that's the emotional tension there. The rest of it is just is uh, not completely soulless action, but it's action that we are not, as an audience, invested in. Apart from the fact that we don't want the human race to be wiped out. Um, and so the whole thing kind of builds to a final battle between um, Neo and Agent Smith in the rain. <laughs> Someone compared it to, I think, like Dragon Ball Z. That would be me. And, I feel it's accurate. Yeah, that was also in an honest trailer, as I recall. But here's my, my big criticism of the final fight scene. I don't feel like they did anything different in the final fight scene than they had already done in the previous movie. You know, for an epic, it kind of reminds me of, uh, once again, the uh, Revenge of the Sith, where George Lucas thought that if he, you know, if he gave us a 20-minute lightsaber battle that went all over a planet, that people would be satisfied and we'd get proper sense of epicness. And again, that that's not all you need. Those are not all the elements you need to make you know for an epic fight scene. Um, it, uh, it 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 falls flat because it's the eighty second time you've seen these two fight each other, and they're not doing anything different this time. And I think um, there was just a lack of creativity on, on the part of the people who put this movie together on coming up with a with an interesting way for Neo to to fight Smith. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to disagree again, which is going to be a theme for this while we briefly kind of run over the last of this movie. I think the reason I enjoyed this so much, more the second time than the first, first of all, as a fan of Dragon Ball Z, I would have been just so happy if Neo had actually busted out a Kamehameha wave, which I know <laughs> is a reference you don't get, but it would have made me happy, first of all. Second of all, this is... And this is where I'm going to disagree with your comparison to the fight sequence, but to the lightsaber battle between Obi-Wan and Anakin, which is, in every sense, a soulless display of Flash with very little emotion or story being told by the actual fight. Again, it's the professional wrestling trope of you have to tell the story in the ring. Well, what story are you telling with the fight? And this is where I, uh, again, while I defended his fight with Seraph a little bit, I will... And I kind of pointed out where I think there's some merit there. By the same token, there's not a story being told. It's just kind of a fight scene. This is, 
as the final fight between Neo and Smith is as much a physical representation of the philosophical clash as it is just a physical fight. This is more than just another fight scene. This is Neo, who is representing humanity at its core and all that is good about us, with clashing with the final avatar of all that is evil and bad about humanity in the form of the Agent Smith who took over the Oracle. And that's really kind of all it's supposed to be. And it, uh, the story that winds up coming out of this is, for all the skill that Neo possesses, he's eventually worn down by not even the, not just again the numbers because it's just a one-on-one fight, but he is worn down by the tireless barrage that comes about from this from the final Smith character, and that's kind of the, and that's the fundamental story being told there that leads to him realizing the only way he can finally beat Smith is to sacrifice himself to purge him from the system, which. Complete, which absolutely, again, completes the Christ metaphor that they've been building through the entire movie. But I just, I enjoy so much of that scene in just, again, kind of a fanboyish, I love watching it way. It's not the most interesting fight scene. I mean, some of this I feel is the limitations of the technology at the time. If this scene were being shot today, you'd get so much more interesting and intricate aerial combat between Smith and Neo than you get in this movie because it well, looks too CGI. Here's the problem with this. Once you've established that both characters can manipulate their entire environments, why aren't they doing that? You know, it's kind of what I've said about the Joker and, and Batman. You know, you, you have a you have Batman who's the superior intellect and you know he has to think his way through things. He's not just Superman, a brute you know, a big brute throwing things. You know, he has to think his way through uh, various and sundry issues, and the Joker reduces him to just a guy punching people in the face. You you have two computer programs who intrinsically know how to manipulate the computer environment. So why not do that? You know, why not have them, you know, being able to create out of the ether huge boulders and throwing them at each other? You know, how about, you know, have the, the just the ground erupt from beneath them, have hot lava or you know erupt from the ground into someone's face. I, I it Did just, you miss there the was part a, where I just said I would have been so happy had he busted out an energy wave that he summons using nothing but his life force? Uh, sure. <laughs> no, I completely agree I, I, with that. I agree with your point there. I suppose the only flip side to that argument is. Well, they can both do it. So theoretically, they could cancel each other out. I mean, so then kind of show of that. I would, I would have, have been know, happy if been... they had. Don't get me wrong. Again, I as much as I enjoy that fight scene, I understand your point about how, what the, about how much further they could have taken it. I, I well, agree with you, you as far as that goes. Want, if you just want to see two guys punch each other in the face, then take me on the journey to get there. You know, have them do have things them. like. You know, they're, uh, have them do have a wizard duel. You know, they're just they're just throwing magic spells at one another, and you know, and you're right, they're, they're so powerful, they're so equally matched that they cancel it out. They just they but they both get frustrated and punch each other in the face a lot. I That's a story. The, the other, yeah, I agree. Again, I enjoy it. And my phone's beeping at me because the battery's almost dead. So, 
again, I, I think the difference. I understand your point, and I completely agree. I think the fundamental difference is that I enjoy it as it is, and I wish it could be better. Whereas I think you're coming from a point of why wasn't it better? And it's just yeah. we have the same. We have the same kind of. I agree with your point. I'm just starting from a different position than you are. Yeah, I look. They had an opportunity. I mean, when Warner Brothers says, "Like, here's millions of dollars, make a Matrix sequel," you you have an opportunity to do all these great things, and I think they missed their opportunity and gave us a uh, an increasingly shitty movie in a lot of ways. So okay, we have we have fundamental different disagreements there, but but on the whole, if they had shaved, you know five to ten minutes off of the Battle of Zion and added it to the Smith and Neo fight, I would have been just happy as a clam at high tide. (laughs) Um, I might be coming across, and we're going to start to wrap up here, I might be coming across a little too harsh on these movies because it's not like I don't, you know, I don't sit and watch them. I bought the movies because I'm interested in uh, the documentaries and, and all the extra footage and stuff. Um, at least the first two, I'm probably going to rewatch again someday with my kids because, you know, they're worth rewatching. I'll, I'll have to give the third one another chance. But overall, I think um, the Matrix trilogy, for all of it, for all of its flaws, is a fun trilogy to watch. Um, I absolutely agree with the idea that it's the thinking man's action film, and it's one that I would recommend for people if you haven't seen it. It's um and even and you've listened to this discussion for some reason I don't know maybe you like the show, uh it's worth sitting down and watching at least once, if for nothing else, and and she really offers nothing more to the movie than this, uh Carrie Ann Moss looks nice in leather. <laughs> All right, brief aside, is it just me or does she age in the face somewhere like between eight and ten years in the four year span between one and two? Oh yeah, Keanu Reeves looks like he's dating his mother in those movies. She she looks young and fine in the first one. I don't know, just something about the age that she hit between two and three in that four year gap aged her face a fair amount. Yeah, I mean, look, and if if you need one reason to at least see the second movie, Monica Bellucci's tits. That's really all you need to know. Monica Bellucci's boobs, just fantastic. Totally worth the price of admission. Uh, I'm tempted to pimp another movie, but I'm worried you, act, you that people might actually watch it. And it's a okay. disturbing movie, so I will not. Uh, in two weeks, Robert Winfrey is going to be back, and he is going to hold my hand and walk me through the Final Destination series. Um, we are going to do we're going to do two hours. We're going to do all five movies. So if it's <laughs> if it sounds like we're giving a whole lot of time to each movie, that would be the reason why I refuse to do this in two parts. Because two well, weeks after lot, that, hang on, there's a lot of rinse repeat, so we're okay. Yeah, that's what I figured. Um, two weeks after that, Gavin Napier will be on. We'll be doing the Mummy trilogy. So um, that's the other reason why I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to do Final Destination in two parts. But yes, it's the Halloween season, so we're looking at horror movies and horror monsters. Final Destination was the choice this year. Rob Winfrey will be back uh, to talk with me, and then two weeks after that, uh, the Mummy trilogy with Brendan Fraser and The Rock. Um, I love movies. Not the third one, but the first two. 
Yeah, and that's one that uh, I know Gavin Napier is a huge Brendan Fraser fan, so I wanted to make sure I had him on for that. Speaking of guys, um, who, you know, speaking of age, Brendan Fraser does not. <laughs> no. Seriously. Um, all right. So what's been going on with Everyone Loves a Bad Guy? No, like you, you took like a week or two off, and then you came back with uh, Pat and I think, and you guys talked ECW. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, last Friday, I had Pat Mullen back on. Uh, yeah, I wound up having an odd schedule. There were a, there was a UFC event on a Friday that I had to cover instead of do the show, and then I got sick the next week, and it just odd events. But yeah, I'm back. Uh, so yeah, ECW was discussed with Pat Mullen on Friday. You can find that show uh, on the Radlich and Broadcasting account on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, I will start putting those up on our Facebook page as well. So like us on Facebook to get all the updates there. Tomorrow, if you're listening to this live or immediately after it was recorded on Friday, I'm talking WCW. I don't have a guest lined up yet. I've reached out to a couple of guys, so I'm waiting to hear back from them. And I uh, will plan on – I also want to cover the uh, Jim Crockett promotions era, so there's going to be a lot of Four Horsemen and NWO discussion. So if you're a fan of pro wrestling, tune in for that. We'll be discussing that at length. Ought to be a lot of fun. This Saturday, I have live coverage of UFC 178 over at 411mania.com. I will also be providing between-rounds analysis for all the guys here that are doing live alternative commentary. So be on the lookout for that. I'm happy because it's Demetrius Johnson. I love watching that man fight. He's awesome. In fact, he's so awesome. My weekly column this week uh, talked about why he's awesome. So if you're over in the MMA zone of 411 Mania, give that a look as well. Give it a read. I try to sell you on the guy and why you should be watching him. He deserves better than the buy rates he's getting because he is damn awesome. And then, of course, every right. Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, the 411 Ground and Pound radio show talks all things in the world of mixed martial arts. Uh, review and preview up this week. And any news that comes out between now and then will also be discussed so tune in for that live. It is a call-in show. The information is given out at the top of each episode. And I think that's everything I have to plug. All right, folks. Uh, we're going to skip right to the end here. Um, uh, I want to thank Robert Winfrey for joining me in this episode of Long Road to Ruin. I want to wish Sean Comer continued. Uh, hope he's doing well. And we hope he'll be back soon even though we have a full slate of programs all the way to the end of the year. Uh, and we'll, um, if you check the Rattledge and Broadcasting Facebook page, uh, there'll, be a, there'll be a schedule up. All the shows going all the way to Christmas. So uh, feel free to check that out. For Robert Winfrey, I am the Mandate Reporter Mark Rattledge. This has been The Long Road to Ruin. Here's one we haven't heard in a while, The Shield. <laughs>